Hello and welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Our CRE Executive Roundtable returns today with Peter Russell of Bed Bath & Beyond as our panel talks about how the retail experience has evolved during the pandemic and what brands are doing to keep up with consumers. And then later on, Burt Crouch of Invesco Real Estate joins the group for a discussion on investments, capital, and credit. We're really excited to kick off this new year of the Executive Roundtable with new host Mike Ablon, our chair of Pegasus Ablon Properties. We'd also like to thank our former chair, Bill Cauley of Cauley Partners, for hosting these calls last year. And if you'd like to continue to hear Bill provide his insights all of last year's roundtable conversations are available. Bill has done a terrific job also hosting our ongoing Legends of Commercial Real Estate series with guests like Jeff Swope of Champion Partners, Michelle Wheeler of Jackson Shaw, and Michael Dardick of Granite Properties. You can check that out wherever you get your podcasts. We've put links to our Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher pages in the show notes. But the best way to get all new episodes right to your mobile device is to subscribe to the show. So do that if you haven't already. Now, here's our first CRE Executive Roundtable of the new year with Peter Russell of Bed Bath & Beyond and Burt Crouch of Invesco Real Estate right here on TrekCast. I think we're going to go ahead and get started because I want to respect everybody's time and hopefully more people uh, will, will join in. For those who are on, um, uh, if, if, if you got yourself videoed out uh, like a Joe Griffith or a Boyle, please uh, put your face on there. We'd like to see it. Um, Jason's gone with the advertising and the hat, so clearly everything's fair game. So don't worry what you're wearing or what you're looking like. It's, it's all good. Uh, welcome to the Trek CEO call. January 13th. Um, so everybody knows this is recorded and uh, we will share it with everybody else. Um, it is the first call of 2021. Our illustrious leader, Bill Cauley, has uh, decided to take a year or two and go skiing. So I've taken the mantle from him. Um, these are supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be informative. They're about trends, current events, and uh, changes in the market. And um, it's also intended to kind of bring us back together since we aren't able to get together as much as normal um, in this time of a little bit of dislocation. Um, I've written a set of questions. Everybody is welcome to jump in. Please do. This is an open call. This is supposed to be fun and interesting. Um, I'll um, be glad to keep asking questions, but I'd rather have everybody kind of join in with the thoughts and comments also as well as questions. And with that, um, you know, again, please keep yourself muted so we keep the static down, but you're welcome to unmute at any given time and hop in. So our first guest this morning is Peter Russell. I think a lot of people on the call know Peter. Um, he's a 30-year veteran of uh, the retail industry. He's with Bed Bath & Beyond, and he will be quick to tell you, if it's outside the box, I know a lot about it, but if it's operations, call the other person because it's not me. So we're going to talk with Peter about real estate and just for clarity, because we're recorded and as always, um, his opinions represent Peter Russell's opinions, not Bed Bath and Beyond. And we're going to keep our conversation to uh, retailers, real estate and general trends. So this isn't about a Bed Bath and Beyond deal. And again, as we get to Burt later, we'll hold the same etiquette if we can uh, with Burt and Invesco to make sure we're talking about 
the market in, in general and information and thoughts, not specifically any fund or investment. So with that said, um, welcome, Peter. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. And Peter's obviously in Aspen skiing, um, or he's in Dallas pretending like he's in Aspen skiing. So uh, nice backdrop. Uh, we've awarded Peter the um, backdrop of the, of the morning award. Um, so Peter, I'm gonna kick it off with a question for you. Each cycle that we go through is different. It's driven by different metrics, different dynamics. This one, um, largely because of uh, COVID-19, uh, let's just euphemistically call it a black swan event. Um, and in each market cycle, each industry reacts differently. How do you see, not, bed, not just Bed Bath, but retailers in general, reacting to this recession different than the ones you've kind of gone through over the past, you know, three or four cycles? Well, I truly believe that this one is a structural change. A lot of the prior events were temporary in nature, whether they were financial. Uh, this one, I think, is structural behavioral changes to the customer shopping patterns, how they shop, where they shop. My customer is now on the couch, is at a restaurant, on an airplane, they're everywhere. So this one, I think, is the, the, the behavior and, tra and patterns have changed, and I don't know that we have enough data to know what the future looks like clearly at this point. So to kind of follow up on what you just said, a structural change, maybe more of a behavioral change than a financial moment where people are spending less money because they're shrinking down and then they get back to business. Um, if you follow that, and again, like you said, we don't have a lot of data. We're in the, we're in the middle of a soup kitchen at the moment. Um, I don't know that people are spending less, in my opinion. You know, I think it was a brief time we were all quarantined and we were forced to uh, spend less. But I think habits of spending and dollars are not, uh, I don't think they're less at this point. They're spending them differently, but it's not less. Great, so let's go back to your structural. Um, there was a structural trend growing trend in place, let's call it a paradigm shift, of um, retailers using more showrooming as mm -hmm. opposed to stocking their stores with tons of inventory. They were, they were kind of getting to that hybrid of showrooming and we, we know that the internet we, it was 8%, it was 10%, it's gonna stabilize at 12. Kind of pull out your crystal ball for a second and take a guess on some of those structural shifts and how those kind of, you had to guess how things shortening, small, making a footprint smaller, where would you say things are gonna to go towards if you had to take some guesses across the junior box retailing? And, and okay. Uh, you know, retail is a very generic term. You know, what's in a retail you know, sales number that the government reports? Autos are in there, online sales. Where, you know, where did that retail sale originate? Was it on a couch that somebody is just going to go to the store and pick up? Uh, or somebody's walking through a Bed Bath & Beyond store where we, you know, we don't have that item in stock. We bring them over to a register. We order it online for them and ship it to them. So who gets the credit for that sale is the internet not the store. So I think a lot of the, the, the numbers are very, they're not very specific uh, when we talk globally, you know, when retail sales, autos 
are in retail sales. Are they, you know, we're looking at X auto retail sales as a percentage. What I think we've lost with the internet is we've lost a lot of impulse buys where people are in there for one or two things and leave with, you know, five or 10 other things. Right now, everybody is specific purchase. Uh, they're buying exactly what they need or, you know, we're being force fed a lot of stuff on social media. Hey, these, you know, workout pants look great. Okay, great. Click, click, click. I get it. I didn't get any of that halo effect of impulse buys. Now that was an impulse buy, but it was isolated. You know, when you walk into a Bed Bath & Beyond, like I said, you go in for one or two things, you walk out with 12 others. So, and just to stay on that structural shift, if you kind of layer in again, one more thing, which is the uh, demographic shifts. We always joke about the millennials and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. But what we've kind of learned is the millennials and Gen Z tend to um, shop online and buy in a store. And some of the baby boomers tend to shop in a store, but then go and buy online. Have you seen any structural changes? Have y'all been able to track that? Are you looking at that from a, just a pure demographic overlay? We obviously are taking the approach, you know, give the customer what, you know, so for us, we're listening to the customer and the customer is telling it, telling us what they want. Every time they buy, they vote, right? If, you know, if it's, you have a hot item in there, you know, and it's selling, you know, they're going to vote that they want more of that item or more of that style, more of that color, whatever it is. Uh, so I think, you know, inventory is differentiated, curated uh, inventory. and I think you're going to have a lot of predictive inventories going forward also with the AI out there. I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, people predicting what people buy. We could force feed people in a certain inventory too. When you go to our launch page on Bed Bath & Beyond, we're going to feed them certain items, you know, and Amazon does that, right? They put it on their front. I didn't know I needed that, you know, that uh, airless fryer. Now I see it. Maybe I do want it. So historically, for if y'all don't know this, for Bed Bath & Beyond, Peter has been the artificial intelligence of Bed Bath & Beyond. He is the AI. They didn't need AI. They didn't spend <laughs> any money on it because they had Peter. Um, can you talk about a little more about what you, you were just talking about, AI and the integration of that to retailers, how they're picking up on that for um, reducing inventory and getting more to the higher sellers and SKU numbers, reducing SKU numbers? Is that really impact? Is that really kind of coming on right now? Well, we're, lear- we're learning about it. We're seeing, like I said, some behavioral changes. Um, AI is telling us certain things. Um, where it's you're early in the stage before we could truly predict, you know, a good amount of inventory in stores. I think we will get there, um, but I think it's still too early to tell what the, you know what the data is going to. Uh, predict for us or how much it can actually predict you know we've got alan shore on with us we've got ray on as people who are either retailers involved in retails in the real estate y'all are more than welcome and everybody else to jump in with with questions that you're curious about also so anybody Uh, mike i'll I'll ask a quick one um you're talking about showroom just because we were on that one thing we're looking at doing is called the geofencing have you 
And to the other people on here that aren't in the retail space, what geofencing is would be if I have a tenant like Bed Bath & Beyond in my center, that I would capture a percentage of all their sales within a certain geographical area around my center. So if they go online, and the reason is if you buy something at their store or you buy it online, you're going to bring it back to their store and trade it in or do those things. But I don't get any credit for that sales or percentage rent um, deal. So that's one thing in retail and a lot of people are looking at. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, which I know you would hate it because you're a retailer. But if you want to be in a premium location like my Highland Park Village, it's like it's there or nowhere in a, in a market area. We're, we're attempting to look at doing that with some of our higher end uh, retailers. Yeah, we can't track. I mean, we could estimate, you know, where a customer, we, there's technology out there today that pings cell phones all over the world constantly. So mm -hmm. I could see through your shopping center, a customer that lives in a certain census tract, how often they go there, what pattern they go there, how long they stay there for. Um, now, we don't know that exact customer's name, but as a customer tracking, you could track that customer. And what else? Did they go from North Park to your store, to your center? Or did they go, you know, did they not find something at North Park and say, hey, Highland Park Village store has it run over there and vice versa? You can track some of that today. Uh, there's, and we just got, I just got an overview on it uh, within the last uh, month on this pinging so I could even see within a you know shopping center. So if there's four intersections, from a shopping center standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. Of where is the customer going? Why you know are they going from this center to this center? Um, what other retailers are they leaving there to go up to Plano to go to another store that's not here? You could track that customer and where they live and how long they spend in those census tracts or in those centers. Now once they get in the door. You know, there's a lot of things where they can't, pay, sometimes they can't ping the cell phones and they do lose coverage, but they can see the last time they pinged them before they went in the store, how long they spent by the time they came out. So that technology is there and is out there. Yeah. yeah but I will, I will from add. a retailer standpoint, what we're trying to do is within a, let's say a census track or something within our center that if I buy something online from you at my home, and it's the wrong size, I'm not necessarily going to send it back. I'm going to go to the store and trade it in. But as long as I got a percentage of that sale from me buying at home, whether you come back to my center or not, you know, we're able to capture the gross sales in that area because you're, you might go look at it at that store and then go back and order it online. Now, I didn't get any credit for that. The example was we, we, we used to have Sir Latab in our center. And people will buy wedding gifts. They'd go in there and look at 12 plates. Well, they're not going to haul a box out to their car. They order them online at the store, but I didn't get any credit for that sale. Yeah, no, it's, anyway. exactly. it's, it's hard. You know, I've always, I've been a believer. I, I don't think we do it this way, but it should be where the credit card is swiped, right? If somebody came into my store, ordered something where we're going to ship it to your store, I think the store should get a credit. If somebody ordered it at the house and returned it to the store, you know, who gets the return on that? You know, so I think it should be where the dollars are spent. But then again, you know, we have a lot more order online, pick up at the store. Who gets credit for that? Yeah. You know, it's, Alan, I don't know. Alan, I think you were going to ask her to say something. Yeah, I, uh, a couple of things. One, we're also seeing retailers using geofencing 
to uh, to help merchandise their stores. It's not only where is the consumer going from store to store, but also where are they going inside that store, particularly if it's a large box retailer. You know, where where is the time being spent in certain departments? And then the retailers are taking that information and either organizing their store a certain way or merchandising their store a little differently, depending on where the traffic goes. You know, on the um, on the sales credit side, you know, zip codes are being pretty commonly used um, to try to capture e-commerce sales uh, for a store. It's tough to do. I mean, Ray, I hear you may have type of real estate asset that allows you to do that but you know if a customer orders online um, and it gets delivered and they live within a certain zip code uh, you know the store wouldn't get credit for that if the customer goes into the store to exchange and I think to Peter's point what we're seeing is it's where the credit card is swiped and and if they come in and they exchange or they get a credit off their credit card or they or they there's a you know an upsell uh, then the store would get credit but uh, short of that, it's a tough thing to get. Yeah, I, I think now, you know, commonly what I've heard is, you know, when Jeff Swope goes shopping, he turns his phone off because he's going to Bed Bath into the ATM machine and then back. So he's having to be a little more careful with his phone on that. Um, I got a real estate question for you. And let me add one more on top of that, Alex. Yeah. You know, there's a great, uh, there's a company out there called Beta uh, that some of you may know. In their store, they track the customer's pattern and they actually do heat maps of the, the, the customer, of where they walked, how long they spent in each department. So I think you, you could see also some of these guys doing heat maps within some of the larger retails, whether you're a Walmart. Uh, they track the customer through their entire life cycle through a store, how long they spent at uh, this department. Did they walk down the aisle or did they just, you know, are they? Are they just shopping the end caps are they going all the way through so a lot of that AI, I think a lot of that is also that's out there beta is one of the companies that does that reminds me of a story her Weitzman told me about um, when it rained he would put some mud around the front door and mush it all up and then he look at the tracks of the cart paths to see how everybody went to the store <laughs> and then rearrange your store. No, seriously, I don't know if I'm the only person who's heard that story. And it's the modern day version heat mapping of how do you arrange the store? And then he started putting his bread over here and his milk over there, which is great. Okay, I've got a more fundamental real estate question for you. Um, we've gone through probably a two decade cycle where there was a really good understanding between Wall Street and retailers. Collectively, they had a really good formula. If the developer like Alan Shore came along, um, he knew that if he could get co-tenancy between these three or four retailers, then institutional money would back them and they could do bigger developments and then they'd fill up their inline and their pad sites, et cetera. And we saw that uh, fairly broadly um, exercised across the country so it's a great effort and it really helped Wall Street put out money and it really helped Bed Bath or other retailers expand their footprint in a way that they liked with their common tendency, um, co-tenancy. What are you seeing right now is in, in the retail, developers are having a harder time doing that right now. I think retailers are, where do you see that trend going forward? Uh, co-tenancy is becoming less and less of a importance. 
to us where we used to want to, you know, we want to be in the right center with the right mix, with the right, you know, customer. Um, but what we used to look for years ago, I think is less important. And I would tell you some of my best stores around the country, I would tell most of them are freestanding stores. So, but we're also opening up. We have a lot of uh, restrictions in a lot of the power centers that restrict uh, certain uses. People are now more specific. They're spending less time in stores. So parking, I mean, we could have a whole half hour conversation on parking lots. Uh, you know, that need to change for the shopping centers. I, we own the, uh, own the shopping center at the Galleria um, in Dallas. And I mean, there's a perfect example. We went in for one time, you know, Dallas allows 25% parking reduction um, variance. We went in to, we added the world market store up there. We're still overparked. You know, and we reduced the, you know, the code by 25% and we're still over. So we could have a big, a big conversation on that. So co-tenancy um, is less important to us. Um, and, you know, you have a lot of retail change. A lot of, a lot of retailers that were, you know, not desirable are now more desirable today. You know, when we used to put in our leases, gyms, they were gyms that we knew, which were, you know, like more of a gold gym. You know, these health clubs are now, you know, social events, you know, so it, things change, you know, when you write a lease and it controls 30 years, a lot change. I probably still have exclusive rights in my leases today that exclude certain tenants by name that have been out of business for 10 years. All right, we've got so. about five, we've got about five minutes uh, left with um, with uh, Peter before I throw up my big vague open one to let him drift on it. Uh, love to have any more questions from uh, Jack. You're doing a lot in, in with um, in the downtown and 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 uh, wrapping around it. Um, Lucy, you, you really are out there with your great project out on LBJ. Do any of y'all have any questions for Peter? Before? Or anybody else before I or Trey from a money standpoint before I hop into a last question? I've got a question. This is Bill Cauley. Um, you said that that the buying attitudes or patterns are different post-COVID. How bad on a percentage basis did your sales get? And how how much back to normal or what on a percentage basis are you today? Well, Phil, based upon, I mean, I could just disclose what we've, yeah, right. Um, you know, if we lost, uh, you know, 20% of our sales in stores, remember our online business prior to COVID was a much smaller part of our business. So I'm just going to, for instance, we were, let's say we were 20% online, 80% bricks and mortar. Well, if we dropped 10% in stores, we could be up 100% online and still net, you know, the same. So we got to be careful of the, the, you know, quoting percentages out there. Uh, but we have replaced in-store sales with online sales. They're not as profitable. You know, we'll get into shipping costs and all the other, you know, factors that affect, you know, how much we make on each one of those sales. But if you look at the pure dollars, uh, we're we're above our sales 
but we don't make as much money on those sales. All right, Peter, last question. If I, anybody else have a question for Peter before I give him the big uh, open question? Okay, back to your crystal ball. Can you talk about, really enjoyed the conversation about geofencing. Um, and uh, Ray, thanks for bringing that up and the, and the mapping. That's really fascinating um, in terms of AI and future and how we operate knowing human patterns. Can you talk about one trend or paradigm shift that you're starting to see coming out now that you're not really sure even how it plays out, but you're really interested as a retailer that you're watching how it might affect real estate? We all know the internet changes everything, but it doesn't replace everything. So I, I find it, I'm really interested to learn on what the shop companies is doing in a shopping center up in Richardson, where they took um, a small community shopping center. I don't know if they sold or gave the land to the city. In between the two, uh, there, there was three buildings, like a U-shape. They tore down the rear. They gave the city the land in between and they're building a park in between this community shopping center uh, and they've leased up the entire shopping center because there's a, now a park which used to be parking. I'm curious of how successful that becomes. Uh, you know, I'm hoping it's successful. It's a innovative thinking of, you know, just taking out the parking. I, I really like the concept uh, of the environment um, aspect and getting more to um, Back to more of an ambiance, you know, what Ray has created at Highland Park Village, you know, it's special. There's, uh, there's authenticity there. There's this, a soul there. It's just, you just can't replace those, those type of shopping centers. So about customer pickup, I don't think we really need to partner with the landlords and figure out, you know, buy online pickup at the store of how, you know, just curbside in a fire lane is not acceptable. We really need to look at innovation, uh, decommissioning some retail space, and maybe doing some, you know, pickup aisles, uh, covered pickup aisles, you know, for weather. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there uh, for that. So, Michael, you know, to answer your question, you know, big changes. Right now, I, I see this as, you know, we all like to, you know, we think the comeback or change in real estate is like a, a commercial jetliner, right? It has a flight plan. It has, you know, it's going to take off at this angle. They're going to fly this many hours. You're going to get there a certain time. Right now, I think it's going to be more like a butterfly. You know, it's going to be slow, unpredictable, but we're going to move forward, you know, as a flight pattern uh, going forward through this, you know, how the customer behaviors are, shopping patterns, showrooming, internet, all of that combined, we'll find, a, we'll find an equilibrium at some point. We always, we always overcorrect, but we always come back to an equilibrium over a period of time. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is really cool conversation, right? It's not just straight statistics, it's thoughts, and um, really appreciate it. Hopefully you'll have the time to stay on um, and, um, uh, listen in uh, with Bert and uh, I know on behalf of everybody we thank you very much. I'm going to keep this rolling now and um, we got Bert Crouch on. Morning Bert. Morning everyone. And um, again 
uh, we, we're always short on uh, introductions because a lot of people know each other. I'm going to read one piece of Bert's bio, and the reason I'm going to talk about it, because a lot of my questions are going to follow along with his responsibilities at Invesco, Bert's at Invesco, and um, again, just like before, everybody pile in. This is an open conversation. It's a dialogue. Um, I've got questions for Bert, but I'd enjoy more hearing everybody else's questions. Part of Bert's uh, purview as a portfolio manager and head of North America for Invesco Real Estate, he sits as a member of the North American and Asia PAC Credit Committees, North American Investment Strategy Group, and North American Management Committee and Global Executive Committee. So um, a very broad purview. So my questions for Bert are really predicated on what he sees and hopefully kind of give us all a broader view of what's going on around us and then whatever we can bring back. So Bert, welcome. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks. Um, and I'm going to kick you off with a little bit of the same kind of open question I asked Peter. Yeah, obviously, you've got a very different optic than Peter has. Um, he's very specific to retail, very specific to a retailer, though he's talked about the industry. Um, and each market cycle is different. You've been around for a long time. You've been a, maybe not around as long as Peter, but um, you've seen a few, and definitely not as long as Swope, but you've seen some cycles here. And each cycle has different drivers and therefore different reactions. This is, again, a black swan driven event by most people's opinion. And the markets react different. How do you see institutional capital reacting differently in this time versus other times in the past? Yeah, look, I mean, <clears throat> when we compare it to the global financial crisis, which is is the most logical comparison, there's really two things, at least that we've seen so far that are materially different. Um, again, I'm speaking to the question, which is primarily derived around institutional capital. Um, so, you know, historically, it is slow to make decisions and and not very decisive in those decisions, meaning they, they rarely want to take a specific tact or, or focus on a, on a particular strategy. And I would say that's very much changed uh, coming out of, of, of where, you know, and again, where we are aren't in the COVID cycle, we can all debate, but um, they've moved very quickly and they've been forced to, uh, you know, what, what's happened from February through, you know, the, the market lows in March and then the recovery since has been significant, uh, not in fundamentals, but in the capital markets. And so they have been forced to make reallocations in their strategy more quickly. Uh, the other aspect is when you think about the global financial crisis, it was in large part a homogenous uh, or had a more homogenous effect across property types and, and markets. And I'm not saying that it was all similar, but it was much more closely aligned and correlated than what we're seeing here. So when you break those down on, on two fronts, um, you know, number one on, on strategy, uh, we have seen core fund exit queues jump quickly and fairly dramatically. Uh, institutional investors don't believe value adjustments have been made. When you look at Green Street's valuation changes in the private markets, it's down 8%. When you look at Odyssey, the index that covers the plus or minus 25 core funds, it's only down a fraction. Um, so call it two and a half, three percent once we get fourth quarter numbers. And instead, institutions are very quickly saying, we don't want to miss out. Uh, a lot of them were too conservative coming out of the GFC. So they're saying, look, I want two things. I want stability of income. Uh, it was the biggest, and, and Trey and I talk about this a lot. It was the biggest quarter 
in the third quarter that um, you know credit strategies have had. It was uh, I think we raised call it 11 billion in the space because they wanted income somewhere between an alternative to fixed income and an alternative to core real estate. Uh, they also said they wanted opportunistic. Uh, this did not happen this quickly last time coming out of the GFC. So 75% of institutions have an allocation to opportunistic. That is quick and that is decisive. The other big change that I alluded to was property type and sectors. Um, you know, when you look at the public markets, REITs are down, I'd call it 8%, trailing 12 months, and I just mentioned private values, according to Green Street, are down the same. But what we all know is it, it's, ex it's extremely barbell this time, meaning industrial is up 12% uh, public markets, 10% private markets, malls are down 38% in public markets, over 25% in private. So that barbell is huge. And then you've got the debated asset classes like office. So office and private markets is down, call it 8%. Public markets, it's down 18. And it's trading at over a 25% discount to NAV. Institutional investors are allocating to managers and niche strategies to try to fill those voids in their portfolios. And they are taking a view on property type and market that they didn't coming out of the last cycle. So let's talk about that. You just brought up two more questions, but we've got Brian O'Boyle, which would be very heavy on the multifamily. We've got Swope. I know he's focused on industrial, like some of everybody else has their kind of pieces. And those are the obvious ones of the moment from a stability income comfort level and seeing the cap rates go down as people are, are uh, getting the surety of the income. If you had to crystal ball it out, and I don't know if you're talking about six months or 18 months or 24, let's call it a post-vaccination kind of reallocation. If you had to, not again, not your funds, not any specific, but generically, if you had to crystal ball it, let's say two years out, allocation-wise, talk about that, because you said reallocated. Is it kind of spread amongst, but looking for a characteristic amongst the asset types, or is it more to different asset types? Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat the million dollar question. It's forced all of us in the institutional space to step back and, and reassess how we define the sectors generally. So when you think about uh, institutional commercial real estate, it, it's the four major food groups, right? So it's, if you think about the order of Odyssey and the market share that each have, it's, it's office number one, and then you go multifamily, industrial, and retail. Currently, that's 95% of the index. When you compare that to publicly traded REITs, so the RMZ index, 20 years ago, that was 84%, so the four major. Now it's less than 50. So the public markets have moved significantly off of those four majors only and gone into all things specialty, right? So that's everything from data centers to single family rental, MOB, self-storage, and, and, and down the list we can go. So to answer the question, when we think about it, I look forward, the projection for Odyssey is that the major asset classes are gonna go down to call it three-fourths, so call it 75%, and specialty sectors will increase to 25-ish percent. Uh, again, that's within Odyssey. That matters because that is a 5X increase in all things specialty sectors, and it takes things like retail. Retail right now is called 15%, it's projected to go to six over the next decade. So from an institutional investor standpoint, again, not my opinion, but where they're saying they want their capital to go, you are gonna see a massive reallocation. And we are doing this. We closed our first single family rental deal uh, on Monday. Uh, 
uh, we are making significant moves into spaces that historically had been deemed uh, too fragmented, non-institutional enough that they didn't really move the needle. That has all changed and it's done it. Uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about COVID. What's the real effect? Well, it's pulled trends forward by some estimates, three years, a lot, I'd say more like five plus. And, and I would say in the institutional space from an allocation standpoint, it's absolutely true. So again, we go back and put a little finer point on that. With Peter, we talked a lot about the impact of the internet on retail, the box, the corporate, the size, the spread. If we were talking to some of the people here that are on the call with us about office, they would talk about the same like quandary of the moment of um, work from home versus work in the office, how that affects a footprint. The changes you're talking about, are those relative to an insecurity and a curiosity or a concern about trying to figure those things out? Or is it a broader switch to a different strategy structurally of let's include these other pieces more because they're really relevant? Yeah, I think it's the latter, generally. Um, you know, we've redefined how we look at, at, um, at the, the four major asset classes. So I, I mentioned, you know, it goes office, multi, uh, industrial, and retail. You know, now we look at it's kind of where do we live, where do we innovate, where do we consume, and then, and then how do we interact? And, and so when you think about that, you know, in the, you know, where do we live, that used to be, <clears throat> in the real estate standpoint, defined as, as multifamily. Well, now it's manufactured housing, senior housing, assisted living, student housing, single family rental, right? Those, that's a bucket. And in aggregate, right, it's very significant. And so you kind of move down the spectrum. I mean, it gets into data centers on how we innovate. You know, how do we consume? It's not just retail anymore. You know, medical office is just a huge focus. And so it is that mindset shift. It's not just generational and, and how are people evolving, but it is also in you know, Peter said it, right? This is a functional, uh, you know, many think a, a paradigm shift. And to the extent that we can respond to that and still get what we need in real estate, total return, income, stability, inflation hedge, uh, we think that's where things are going. And accordingly, we need to evolve our thinking and how we categorize those asset classes. All right, now we've got to follow up on that. And uh, uh, thanks, uh, oh boy, we're getting some static here, thanks. Um, and I could ask this to you and I could ask this to Trey and I'd be interested maybe to Trey follow up with you on his opinion on this. Can you address the same question from a debt perspective? You talked about how institutional capital is moving, but that only moves if it has the debt moving with it. How is debt looking at this? <clears throat> Trey, you want to take that? Well, you, you're the credit expert, my man. Uh, <laughs> I think you started by saying you'd raised a couple billion dollars in your credit vehicles in the last six months. So, no, I did. I, did, I said no such thing. I can't speak to specific funds, but um, but yeah, no. Look, so I, I think it is. Um, if you look at uh, you know what is what is accepted in the space, um, you know, life science is is very accepted. MOB is as well. Single family rental has never been more liquid from a financing standpoint than it is today, regardless of scale. Um, do you still have some areas that are going to struggle uh, assisted in senior living from a development standpoint in a post-COVID environment? What does that look like? And how do you structure it uh, clearly is, is, is nuanced. Uh, infrastructure, very liquid, very financeable, but very large. So in large part, you know, when you look at commercial mortgage originations last year, they were down 
call it a third year over year, but that's not because there wasn't ample capital available. Trey and I laugh about it all the time. Spreads have never been tighter. Market share is going to continue to pick up for private providers. Uh, you know, if you look at, at, at banks, what they were down in the third quarter of year over year, it was around two thirds. So the regulatory environment is going to be tough, potentially worse in this administration. So it's going to reallocate to the private side, which will allow for more flexibility into the specialty sectors, because not only can we be more flexible in our mandates, but I just told you on the equity side, we as a firm are diligencing and investing in all of these specialty sectors that translates clearly to the other side of the shop, which is credit. But at the end of the day, we don't have any, anywhere else to go, right? If you think about it. So we are forced similar to the equity side on the credit front to, uh, to follow suit in where the trends are going from a fundamental standpoint and where the capital needs to be from an allocation standpoint. Trey, what would you add to that? Well, that last comment is super important because we have significant tailwinds in our business because there's, there's no yield. I mean, real estate's going to significantly benefit, whether it's the equity markets or the debt markets, um, which is somewhat an obvious, but as it relates to the debt markets, we actually debated this yesterday internally. We sort of asked the question, how well functioning are they? Are we back to 100% functionality, et cetera? Extraordinary liquidity. And I would tell you, maybe we're not at 100%, but we're close. And within certain sectors, it's past 100% capacity, meaning there's a lot more money to be employed in certain sectors than there's available product to finance. And Bert knows that all too well. Um, but it goes back to this barbell commentary. I mean, you have a lot of people wanting the same thing. So it's chasing yeah. down cost of capital and yield and spreads, credit spreads, extraordinarily low levels. I mean, I heard of a 10-year fixed rate bid on a low leverage deal recently at 84 over the treasury. So that's a complete outlier. That's very, very low. But we're talking about really historic level, low levels of capital cost, capital cost of capital. So, you know, with the exception of maybe hospitality, which even there is coming back, and others on this call could probably speak to that. You have an, a very, very well functioning debt capital markets right now, really across all constituencies. I mean, you take it to the public markets, through life insurance companies, banks, regional, national. Um, to get to Bert's point, a lot of the private uh, originators in the debt fund and leverage lender space, everyone has capital. Everyone is raising additional capital. The LPs that are funding those businesses are wanting to deploy more into those spaces. So very, very healthy credit markets today. And I don't see that abating. I, I think there's going to be pretty continued liquidity across the spectrum. You know, I didn't mention the agencies, but the agencies kept us really through this cycle of Fannie and Freddie, particularly in the middle of, middle of COVID. They were incredibly active. So to Bert's point, our, I just looked at our pipeline yesterday and what we did at the end of the year, our debt business was only off 6%. So if you think about 19, which was an extraordinary year, and 20, which essentially we took a quarter off, our debt business being down 6% to me is, is just that. It's extraordinary. Um, our pipeline represents similar statistics. So, you know, that's, that's hitting on all cylinders um, with very few exceptions, and even the exceptions from a property type perspective. The, Availability of capital is there, it's just expensive. Um, so I, I'm not sure anything's unfinanceable. Jeff uh, Swope, you, you kind of have both the optic of the REIT and the optic of um, the private side. Anything that you've heard Bert or Trey talk about that you see differently or love to hear your thoughts? Well, I'm just glad to see Bert and Trey not have gray hair yet. It's coming. So. <laughs> Uh, great to see you, Bert. It's been a long time. Good to see you, Jeff. Watching you. Happy for you. Um, 
think the in the public markets, uh, depending on which one, which product type, but clearly uh, some of them are out of favor of retail and, and uh, office for sure. Hotels, of course. And so that, I think the REIT space, with most of the leadership in those entities, you're just going to see very little get done. And what's going to motivate to get done? I think that's the big issue. It's just what, what's going to motivate some of these big public companies whose stock prices are down to make moves to do something. And then not that much private activity doesn't appear right. So I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, watchword. And so it gets back to motivation. What's going to motivate? And I just, we're not seeing anything moving. Um, so I think the public REITs in the major product type, with the exception of industrial, maybe multifamily, it's going to be real, real slow, real slow comeback. Um, and you would think they'd be buying stock back, but you're not seeing it. Um, in fact, I'm a little surprised at watching that. I thought there'd be more stock buybacks. So it gets back to that word I, I like to bring up a lot of motivation. What motivates individuals at the tops of these companies? What motivates the companies themselves to make moves? And it's just not happening. So uh, we're early in the year. We could see a change in that. But uh, clearly, uh, that's what's going on there. In the private market, it's interesting to me that the, the wide dichotomy and pricing that we all talk about, uh, the discounts between in the public market versus the private market, especially the public market has liquidity it does. So it's just interesting, not that it's surprising, it's just interesting and what impact that has. But other than that, I mean, I could, I could get in the weeds a little bit more, but that's sort of the overall uh, thought process uh, thinking to your question, Mike. We've got Jack. We've got Lucy, we've got Michael Levy, we've got Colin. We've got some local developers that have a lot of scale to them, much smaller than me. The golden word I heard, Bert, was no matter the scale. So I got in the game for a minute there. But we've got some bigger uh, kind of developers that do larger scale here. Jack, Lucy, Michael, uh, Steve, anybody have questions? Ray, anybody have questions for Bert? I'd, I'd be curious at are you getting into the deals earlier? Are you starting to, to be in the land purchase business or are you uh, waiting until the deals are, are signed up with leases? You're talking about a new development? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think anything's necessary. If it's specific to industrial, I mean, we're having to you know get more aggressive across the board. Taking true entitlement risk is still tough in a lot of, uh, and again, I'm speaking more generically, uh, not necessarily specific to our funds, but uh, a lot of the mandates uh, preclude uh, taking uh, entitlement risk or there's a bucket carved out for it. But if it's entitled and as of right, um, then yes, I, I think we're having to do that across the board. I mean, to the points made and, and Trey touched on it, I mean, we just can't find enough product in industrial to satisfy um, you know, all the different needs that we have across the board, court opportunistic. So in order to, to get the scale that we need, we're, we're forced to go out the spectrum along with everybody else. You know, one comment that was just touched on a second ago, you know, on allocations for this year and, you know, Trey made the point about, and I agree with his, his comments across the board, he made a comment about just, you know, where rates are. And one of the things that has changed uh, quietly over the last 90 days since the election is 10-year treasuries out 40 basis points and yield curves have steepened significantly um, as inflation adjustments uh, or expectations are up as, as is productivity. We could debate, is that fiscal stimulus driven? Is that true economic uh, activity driven? But neither here nor there, uh, one of the areas that we have really shown in a positive light on a relative basis 
um, is, uh, you know, within high yield and, and investment grade uh, corporates, uh, real estate looks cheap, right? Or said differently, it's yielding a higher number. And Green Street does a, a monthly assessment of this, and that helps drive that allocation to us. When you put yourself in an institutional CIO seat and you think about how he or she thinks about the world, uh, right now, you know, investment grade bonds uh, went negative on a real yield standpoint for the first time in North America, uh, call it nine, you know, 60, 90 days ago. Does that hold up over time if rates do continue to increase? And I'm not here to be a prognosticator of rates. I think it's a, a fool's errand, but it is something that we'll be watching really closely. Uh, you know, the other thing here that's such a sea change, you ask about the previous crisis versus now, when you think about the, the you know, what drives commercial real estate capital, right? So the, the, the numbers today, depending on who you believe, somewhere between 185 and north of 200 billion of buying power, that's 2x of where we were this time coming out of the financial crisis, call it mid-09. So we have all this capital on the sidelines that you hear about all the time. The question is going to be, is it going to hold? And the point I was going to make is, the S&P being up 16% last year is absolutely surreal, right? The NASDAQ was down almost 30% from February, uh, you know, highs to March lows and then rallied almost 90%. The denominator effect that that drives for all of our investors and their ability to quickly not reallocate, but make new allocations uh, to, to fund managers and, and, and others in the space, uh, we just didn't see before. And if that holds, uh, the increased allocation will hold. So institutions are right now are around 10.6% uh, allocated to real estate. That's up, you know, call it 10 basis points year over year. That gives us another 100 billion of capital allocated to the space. That's needle money. And they're only invested at 10% right now. So you've got that delta as well. If the markets were to sell off, and I'm talking about public equity markets, and or rates were continue to rise from a relative value or availability of capital, it would change the game regardless of how real estate fundamentals or real estate pricing does. All right, so um, we're-, we're and, and, and add on a couple points, just on that 10%, 10.1 or 10.2, whatever you quoted there, just to give everybody a sound bite, you go back 20, 30 years, many people's career on this phone, it was 2%. So if you wanna talk about a significant wall of capital that's essentially come from an allocation perspective institutionally into our space, it's really over the last 25 to 30 years gone from 2%, it's gone up 500%, 5X increase. Give you another sound bite, and Berg, you probably track this because PERS is a relationship. CalPERS is our largest state plan in the US. Uh, they just increased at the board level the real estate allocation from 11, right in line with what Berg said, to 17. This is not an incremental shift. Usually big state plans move from 12 to 11 to 12, 12 to 13. They went from 11 to 17, and it has everything to do with the fact that their fixed income portfolios aren't yielding anything. They cannot meet their actuarial requirements being in fixed income. And fixed income allocations historically for most funds have been, well, Bert would know better than I, but what, 35 to 45 probably percent of the allocation, real estate being plus or minus 10. A lot of that fixed income is now shifting to alternatives and real estate being the largest of the alternatives. Great, so, so I'm, gonna follow, I'm gonna follow up on that Trey and Bert. Yep. And I'm gonna ask a very selfish question because um, I'm a Dallas guy, I'm a Dallas developer, Dallas investor. I asked this question yesterday, we had a mixed conversation in a small group. Um, for the last decade, the last two decades, we've always heard the conversation about gateway cities. Gateway cities, United States, gateway cities. I remember when Dallas was uh, redlined. We, we, nobody wanted to come to Dallas after the 80s. And then here we are, and we're talking about 
Dallas, Atlanta, The Smile. Some people have gone so far as to say they're the new gateways. Other people argue against that from Sovereign Capital. Talk about Dallas, Fort Worth, Bert, and is there a shift in how we're seen nationally or internationally as a, as a, as a magnet for this capital we've been talking about? Are we open for a, a larger disproportionate amount of it that might even affect local cap rates and long-term values, or are we just having a happy trend of the moment? Yeah, look, I mean, we're, we're not a gateway city, stating the obvious, but we're also not a, a secondary market anymore either. Right, so it, it's a, it's actually a great place to be. We're a primary market all day long, um, and you know, relative to where I mean, you got to think about it on a relative basis. If you believe what we were just talking about about the availability of capital, the institutional reallocation and increased allocation to commercial real estate, it's got to go somewhere. And if you look at where it's gone historically, between New York, San Francisco, L.A., and then you can go down the list of, of gateway cities, a lot of those right now. I mean, take New York, take Manhattan. It is arguably not investable. Uh, it is very hard for us to get institutional capital wanting to jump into New York today. So when you think about where it has to go, it's going to go to places where it, quality of life, um, you know, fiscal uh, health, uh, uh, perspective on business, the willingness to attract businesses, population growth, um, you know, quality of life generally. Dallas checks every one of those boxes. And when you look at the employment growth over the last one, three, five, ten years. It has consistently been in the top three, and that's not an opinion, it's a fact. The other area that Dallas keeps getting hit on, to your point about the 80s, is we just overbuild here, and we overbuild till we blow it out. Same thing with Atlanta. And people keep saying that on multifamily and industrial, and it keeps not being true. In certain pockets, high-end urban infill, um, you could argue, yeah, okay, maybe it's a little bit overbuilt and rents have come down a little bit, but it's more on the fringe. Um, so again, I, I think the fundamentals warrant it, Number one, and number two, to my first point, there's not a whole lot of other places, at least today, for capital to go. So the Charlottes, the Nashvilles, the Floridas, Atlantas, Dallas, um, you know, have held up really well. Houston, uh, those are going to be outliers to the negative because they are still very concentrated from uh, the business driver standpoint. But Dallas and Austin get a, a very much a free pass. I think the question on our minds is what happens to the San Antonios of the world? Did those get to become more institutionally accepted than they are now, um, which is a little bit hit or miss depending on, on who you talk to and, and what property type you're investing in. Okay, so we have two minutes left. Who would like to ask the last questions? And, and we're going to run short on time. And I am very committed to keeping everybody on one hour because attendance goes up if everybody knows it's an hour, it means an hour. Um, so we have one open question, but before we get to that, Peter, thank you very much for your time and, and your gift of your uh, knowledge and information. And Bert, thank you to you too. We really appreciate, again, these are individual opinions, not representative of the entities or any funds or real estate, but general knowledge. So thank you, thank you on behalf of this group of 30, the plus or minus that are on, and everybody who's gonna listen to it on the Trek website when it's posted, because that gets a lot of, uh, a lot of looks. Uh, does anybody have one last question and make it like impossibly hard for these guys? If you would, don't, I've been tossing the softball. Somebody drill them for me, please. 
Uh, Trey, Trey, you mentioned that uh, money's coming back into the hospitality sector. So what, what, what kind of rates are you seeing and, and uh, when do you think that, that sector is going to come back? That's a hard one. No, I would have said it was a hard one maybe a quarter ago because it was largely liquid from a credit perspective. And, you know, we had some folks out there ostensibly hard money lending 7, 8, 9, 10%. Um, we've actually started to move some hospitality product on the IA side, on the, on the transactional side, sales side, which has surprised me a bit. Um, in some cases, really surprising numbers. Um, but cost of capital, Bert's got a pretty good handle on this. I'm going to say the last things we checked, I saw a note this morning, we got a deal done in the 5% range. And you got to think about where most of this sort of bridge floating rate money is getting deployed. It's in the 200 over at the low end from the bank market all the way up into three, 350, maybe 400 over. That's the meat of the market in traditional asset classes. So to give someone an extra 100, 150 basis points of, of yield, that's where people are starting to attract some money from hospitality perspective. And that's come in, like I said, a few hundred basis points in terms of cost of capital. The challenge there is few things are financeable. So there is more money in the sector, but it sort of has to be the right profile, right market, Find asset quality, sponsorship, et cetera. So it's not, that's not a universal comment. All right, Bert, as they always say on the talk shows, last word. Yeah, not much. I, I just appreciate being invited. This is a, this is a great group. And, um, you know, the, the candor uh, shared here, I, I think is, is important. You know, my, my only parting comment, you know, I, and I said this the other day um, to a, a different group, but similar one is, you know, we're really focused on all things data right now and, and changing the mindset from what, you know, has really become commoditized research into how to better analyze our data, how to aggregate it, quality control it, use it to analyze our performance and our portfolio. And I think that's going to be a sea change we're going to see across the industry uh, over the next two to, to five years. And I, I think it's going to move the needle on, on competitive advantages and, and trends, investment strategies and the others. So just something to watch uh, as we move forward. Yeah, that's, that's really neat because that really ties back to kind of Peter's last word, which is really the integration of how they're using AI and data and cell phone and geofencing to understand their customer and respond to their customer. Uh, Peter, last words. Yeah, I, I just want to say thank you very much for the invite to, uh, to be part of this. Uh, very excited about it. Um, really, I just wanted to... Um, you know, anybody feel free to ever call me, email me. Uh, I'm always available. Always happy to take anybody's call to answer any more specific questions or anything, you know, retail or anything alike. So um, thank you again to Linda. Uh, I see you there. I see some Christina. Thank you for your support. I see Patty. Thank you to everybody at the Real Estate Council for everything you do for all of us, giving us the opportunity to share all this. Um, we're at one hour and two minutes, and we're going to adjourn. And um, thank everybody for attending. Um, if you want to reference this to any of your colleagues, it'll probably be on the website in about a week. It takes about a week to process and get it posted up, but it'll be there for uh, future reference. And thank you to everybody. Everybody have a great day. Have a great year. We look forward to doing this again next month. Um, Bill Colley might be back as a moderator if I'm fired. You have to show up to find out. Everybody have a great day, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. That concludes our first CRE Executive Roundtable of 2021. Big thanks to Peter Russell of Bed Bath & Beyond, Burt Crouch of Invesco Real Estate, and all the other executives who joined the conversation. If you like what you heard on today's show, you're in luck because we put out a lot of content. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get every new episode right to your mobile device. We've got links to our podcast pages and social media handles in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.